Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. So that our hearts would be inclined towards your voice. And we ask in this final session that you would speak, that you would disturb us, that you would agitate us, that you would enliven, exhort, and encourage us. We love you, Father. And we say these things in Jesus' great name. Amen. So, so far, uh, over the weekend, I've presented to you the big idea from Scripture that God calls us to be invitational, to extend an invitation to people to join us on the journey with Jesus and to invite them to discover more about Jesus. And that takes the pressure off evangelism as being a sales pitch enterprise where it's all about closing the deal because it's not all about closing the deal. As Steve Shogren said, it takes each person a unique amount of time to come to faith in Christ. And so sometimes we need tenacity and patience, but we need to be intentional about inviting others to discover more about Jesus. And that means you having the courage to speak a word for Jesus, to share your story, how God's stories collided with your story, but also thinking as you review the people you're in relationship with, what might be a good forum for them to take their first step to discover more about Jesus? Some people are allergic to church, so the first step might not be a Sunday morning. It might be an alpha course. It might be a guy's retreat. And you've just got to kind of figure that one out and figure out, hey, what would be a good thing to take them to? And then do it. The thing is, we get it inside our heads that people are going to be hostile. They're going to reject us. They're not going to be open. And uh, probably two-thirds of North Americans are actually open and receptive to an invitation to church. There was a survey done about seven years ago that said 80%, and it's shrinking. You know, so people are re- less receptive, admittedly, but they're not as cold and aloof as you think. So we've got to be intentional about being invitational and also intentional about being infiltrational to take on board the words of Jesus who says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And to recognize that our culture is not a battleground, it's a mission field. And God has called us to be his hands, his feet, his mouthpiece, and to give up home field advantage and to spend time bridge building with pre-Christian people. But this morning I want to talk about another word to live by. So there's words to live by invitational, word to live by infiltrational, or if you want a clunky theological word, incarnational. The word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. The word this morning that God calls you to live by is innovational. Innovational. And so you say, great, thanks for inventing a word, Scotsman. Would you please explain it? I'm so glad you asked that question because that's what I'll do. Innovational means the act or process of introducing something new or different. The act of innovating, introducing new things or new methods or embracing the future with creativity 
In other words, as a child of God and as a community of God's people, God invites you to climb out the box, throw the box away, shred the box, and not be governed by the past, but to move into the future with a sense of anticipation and a commitment to creativity. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22, to those who are weak, I became weak so I could win the weak. I have become all things to all people so I could save some of them in any way possible. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22. So what's Paul saying? He's expressing his internal bias that he is prepared to do anything short of sin to reach people with the gospel. And as a consequence, he was adaptive, he was flexible, he changed his game plan depending on the setting. To those who are weak, I became weak so I could win the weak. I've become all things to all people so I could save some of them in any way possible. So this raises a question that I've got to answer in my soul. You need to answer as an individual Jesus follower. Pastors and elders in the congregation need to answer. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to reach lost and broken people for Jesus? Are you willing to climb out the box, be flexible, adaptive, innovative to reach people for Jesus? Are you willing to climb out the box, move beyond the box to maximize our redemptive capacity? Your redemptive capacity as an individual, your redemptive capacity as a church. Doing things in new and innovative ways. Taking risks and just call them an experiment. That's what I do. I say, hey, everybody, we're going to try an experiment. And that means I can get up if it's a disaster and say, hey, remember that experiment? It didn't work. So with the spirit of Thomas Alva Edison, uh, we're going to try another experiment. And that way, we're willing to take risks for Jesus. I had a great conversation last night. We're talking about the supernatural, and the Apostle Peter comes up in conversation. And he gets a bum rap from evangelicals because they say he's the turkey that almost drowned. He's the guy who was walking on water, and then he remembered a lecture from the University of Babylon on relative density. And he sinks. And probably if I had five bucks for every time I've heard a sermon about, you know, boys and girls, Peter almost drowned because he took his eyes off of Jesus. Take your eyes off of Jesus and you're going to drown, sucker. And I'll go, wow, thanks for the ministry of condemnation. Not. But the whole point is he was the only one who was willing to move beyond his comfort zone, step into an uncertain future and move towards Jesus and not step out the box, but step outside the boat. Now, it can be kind of uncomfortable to approach the future in new and innovative ways. I went to one of these Willow Creek Global Summits, I don't know, four or five years ago, and this academic from the University of Southern California, who's written the Contrarian's Guide to Leadership, Stephen Sample, was one of the keynotes. And he has his name attached to a number of patents in the United States because he's an inventor. 
And as he was talking, I thought, this guy's a freak. Because he was talking about how he invented a device that's in every single dishwasher in North America. He invited some kind of dial that's related to the timing mechanism in your dishwasher. And he explained the process by which he arrived at this invention. He said he lay on his stomach and stared at the dishwasher. And I thought, okay, that's odd, but not too weird. But then he went all weird and he said, I began to ask myself, what would an ant think of this dishwasher? How would an elephant approach this problem? And I thought, wow, this guy's running USC. No wonder the United States is in a world of hurt. But what he's trying to do is not limit his thinking. And there's a danger in the church that we get mired into old ways and old patterns. And we find it very painful and awkward to look at ministry, look at the future, look at the possibility of being an agent of redemption in a limiting way. But the question is, are you committed to being innovational? Now, one of my favorite TV shows is Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I'd love to bring him on my pastoral team and just deal with all the problem people, all the extra grace required people. Gordon Ramsay could just minister the right hand of fellowship to them. That would just be extraordinary. Pastor Bill, what's happening? Oh, Pastor Gordon is going to lay hands on that person. And then I could just sit back and watch as he exercises his ministry of encouragement. So, uh, but the amazing thing about Kitchen Nightmares, uh, and my son and I, this is part of our must-see TV. I mean, my life group meets on a Thursday, which ruins Thursday night with The Office, 30 Rock, and Grey's Anatomy. But I thank Jesus for the PVR. You know, I said to my wife, I think we just need to move life group to a Tuesday because TV sucks on a Tuesday. Friday's my day off. I should wind down just by watching all these great shows. And she says, what? And so that one doesn't fly. But my son and I, we record Gordon Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares. And Ramsay's a guy that intrigues me. He actually grew up in the town that I grew up in. And sadly, when he was a six-year-old boy, he was taken to England. And that's why he sounds like an Englishman, uh, even although he's Scottish. So when Gordon and I get together, I'm just going to lay hands on him and pray for the supernatural healing of his vocal cords. Uh, and then he'll begin to speak with the language of heaven. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but this is the way they all speak in heaven. I don't know if you know that. The Christian hope is not the immortality of the soul. That's a Greek idea. It's the resurrection of the body. And when you die and you go to heaven, you get your promotion, you'll be given a glorious resurrection body, money penny. That's what's going to happen. And when you get a glorious resurrection body, you'll get glorious resurrection vocal cords. And you'll all speak with a Scottish accent. <laughs> so as a foretaste of the life of the kingdom to come, I'll lay hands on Gordon and heal his speech impediment, that English accent. But he's an interesting character. He was going to be a soccer player. He suffered a knee injury as he was this emerging soccer star, had a career change and became a chef. And if you've seen uh, Hell's Kitchen, he's a fierce dude in the kitchen. You've got all these wannabe chefs and he's berating them, shouting them. And I think that's a strategy to see how people perform under pressure. But the interesting thing about 
kitchen nightmares is, it's pretty much the same story each time. It's a dysfunctional restaurant run by a dysfunctional owner who may have incalculable debt. They may even have the restaurant mortgage attached to the mortgage on their house. And so you see these people who are distraught and they're almost immobilized by fear. They're anxious because if the business doesn't work, then they lose their homes. And sometimes there's people who are inept. And sometimes there's restaurateurs who simply have developed bad habits and abandoned good practices that they actually know. And Gordon comes in as a truth teller and gives them a game plan for change. Sometimes that involves a name change. There's a decor change, a menu change. Sometimes there's a change of staff. A waiter is fired. A chef is fired. But the amazing thing is, a restaurant can be losing money. The food can be lousy. The staff can be underperforming. The owner can be dysfunctional. But when Gordon Ramsay introduces positive changes that will turn things around, he's almost invariably met with pushback and at times very fierce resistance to change. Even although it's very clear that his recommendations, his prescriptions will mean increased revenue, mean a happier staff, mean a healthier owner, he's met with resistance. And that's part of the drama of the TV show. That's part of the suspense. Like, are they going to adopt these new measures? Are the people in the restaurant going to be innovational or will they resist change? Will they take on board the strong medicine of Gordon Ramsay and have a new healthy future? Or will they keep to the way things are, even although the way things are are unhealthy? So it's an interesting drama that's really a study in change management. And sometimes restaurants and restaurant owners are resistant to change. But churches and Christ followers can be resistant to change. And the question is, how innovational are you? Resistance to change can be deadly. I was having flashbacks recently because you'll all be aware on the news that Iceland, this small, insignificant little country that really should be like a county of Scotland, has uh, brought the world to a standstill by barfing volcanic ash into aerospace. And so I'm getting Facebooked, and people are Twittering, saying, oh, I'm stuck in Paris, can't fly. And I'm like, oh, well, what a shame. Sucks to be you. And so there's people being immobilized. John Cleese, who's got more money than common sense, was grounded, and he just paid like 5,000 bucks for a taxi driver to take him somewhere where the air was fresh and clear. But I was thinking about this. I would mind went back to Mount St. Helens in Washington State, where I used to live. And in Mount St. Helens, there was an incredible amount of volcanic ash spewed into the sky. And if you look at some of the archive media footage, and sometimes they put that on the TV because they go, hey, Iceland volcano, remember Mount St. Helens? And it looked like a snowstorm. It looked like there'd been a blizzard. But actually, it was volcanic ash that was sitting on roofs and cars and streets. And one of the people 
who made the headlines was an old buzzard called Harry Truman, who owned a lodge on Spirit Lake. And during the summer, he had 100 boats for rent. He lived with 13 cats. He was in his 80s. And consistently, the authorities warned him of the danger that was imminent. And consistently, he blew them off to the point that Harry Truman's corpse is entombed several hundred feet below the bottom of the new spirit lake. He refused to change. He would not be innovational and ultimately paid the ultimate price. When I was a young guy cut my teeth in ministry, Morag, who was either my girlfriend or my fiancé at the time, and I ran a children's outreach. Nothing too dazzling for the North American church scene because we call it VBS. Scotland, I don't know what we called it, but uh, basically we ran a Bible club in the evening and the place was swarming with kids. They had a blast and a bunch of them made commitments to Jesus and there was just that buzz from putting a win on the scoreboard and kids hearing about the love of God, families being impacted by the love of God that the church had never touched before. And the church was faced with a decision because all the kids who came to our Bible club, almost without exception, evening after evening, did not live in close proximity to our building. They lived in another part of town, a place of multiple social deprivations. And these kids like walked a fair old distance just to be part of this. So there was a debate and the debate, ran along two lines. Should the church buy a van and bus these kids to our building so that they could be part of our established Sunday school program? Or should we start a satellite ministry that would run at the same time on a Sunday, we'd staff it with volunteers, and Morag and I would lead it, and we would serve the families in this needy community and give the kids the opportunity to discover more about Jesus, get dug deeper into the scriptures, and hopefully embrace their families. And like ping pong, they went backwards and forwards. At one point, some bright guy suggested that we form a committee to explore the feasibility of both options. And I said with all the wisdom and grace and tenderness of a 20-year-old, I said, if Moses had formed a committee about whether or not they should cross the Red Sea, Pharaoh would have terminated all the Israelis. And they're like, well, thanks for sharing. And so they debated what to do, and ultimately they did nothing. Ultimately it was business as usual. And a redemptive moment, a moment of great opportunity to make inroads into a needy part of our community and to support and nurture fledgling faith in children was missed because of lack of commitment to embracing change. They would not be innovational. I'm grateful to God for the church I grew up in. I would not be here today if they had not been insanely generous in giving me the pulpit as a 16, 17-year-old little jerk. And they opened up the pulpit and let me berate them in the name of the Lord and uh, supported me in the call of God. So I'm not saying that to slight these people, but saying that 
a moment was missed because they simply were not willing to do things differently. So the question is, how open to new ideas and fresh expressions of ministry are you? How many of you have heard of William Thompson? Jason's highly educated. He's a leadership development guru, and uh, he's drawn a blank there. So uh, how many of you have heard of Lord Kelvin? Absolute zero. Any scientists in the room? Okay, so I'll put you out of your misery now that you don't know. William Thompson was an Irishman, also known as Lord Kelvin, and also known as First Baron Kelvin, Lord Kelvin. Mathematician, physicist, inventor, professor, responsible for scientific and mathematical breakthroughs, but also an Irish stick in the mud. This inventor and scientist said, radio has no future. Heavier than air, flying machines are impossible. The Quarterly Review in England in March 1825 ran this copy. What can be more palpably absurd than the prospect held out of locomotives traveling twice as fast as stagecoaches? Dr. Dionysius Lardner was the professor of natural philosophy and astronomy at University College London, and he said, rail travel at high speed is not possible because passengers unable to breathe will die of asphyxia. Popular Mechanics in 1949 wrote, computers in the future may perhaps only weigh one and a half tons. And Dr. Richard van der Riet Woolley, who was the astronomer royal and the space advisor to the British government, said in 1956, and I quote, space travel is utter bilge. The following year, Sputnik was up in the sky and orbiting the earth. So it's possible to have a great mind and even be a breakthrough person but get tripped up and limited because of an unwillingness to adapt, be flexible, and embrace new ideas. Now, where does this land spiritually? God is innovational. God says in the book of Isaiah, chapter 43, verses 18 and 19, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up, do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. So God is always committed to renewal, always committed to new things. And while we celebrate the past, the prophetic warning of Isaiah 43 is not to get mired in the past because God is innovational. And he has created us as his people and his children in his image and likeness. In other words, there's a divine expectation that you and I will embody the innovational nature and character of God. God calls us to be innovational and to take fresh, bold steps into the future. Mark chapter 2, verse 18 through to verse 22. A little paragraph in the life and times of Jesus, the Messiah. Scripture says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, 
If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, make the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No. He pours new wine into new wineskins. Now, what does this mean? It means Jesus came and upended the familiar patterns of religious life. The Pharisees were into join the dots and paint by number spirituality. And much to their dismay, Jesus is a guy who colors outside the lines. And he often doesn't use the colors that the Pharisees like. And they've got this tight, religious, God-in-a-box expectation that Jesus will do what they did and Jesus will do what the followers of John the Baptist did. In other words, it's always been this way. But Jesus was not dictated to by the way things are always done around here. Pharisees had an attitude, that's the way things have always been done around here. But Jesus would have none of it. Now, if you look at the Gospels and you take off your religious lenses when you read the Gospels, you find that Jesus at times was intentionally provocative. Did things to upset the apple cart. Now, not just to be a pest. There was always a redemptive agenda. But if a religious expectation, a cultural more, a cultural standard got in the way of Jesus healing, saving, redeeming, restorative ministry, then he upended the apple cart. That's the way he operated. So, for example, in Jesus' day, the spirit of Archie Bunker rested upon first century Judaism. And men would get up in the morning and they would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And thank you, God, that I am not a woman. It was unthinkable that rabbis would speak to women in public. And it was unthinkable that Jews and Samaritans would have any social interaction whatsoever. I grew up in the west of Scotland where Catholics and Protestants despised each other. And people would say to me, hey, wee man, what school did you go to? And they weren't interested in my educational resume. They were listening to say, if I said, I went to St. Aloysius, or I went to Holy Family. And they go, oh, you're a Catholic. Or if I said, I went to Paisley Grammar School and William B. Barber Academy, they'd think, oh, you're a Protestant. I won't smash you in the teeth. And so that's the environment I grew up in. The town I grew up in had parts of the town that were exclusively Protestant, and exclusively Catholic. And so the way into the Catholic part of town was called Fenian Alley, and no Protestant in their right mind would wander into Fenian Alley on their own. Maybe if they had four or five Rottweilers in tow, they might go for a stroll. One time the priest from the local parish went into the glen, a bastion of Protestantism, to visit a family. And someone picked the priest up and threw him down several flights of stairs. So that's what I grew up in. I went to Clune Park Primary School. And every day we would go past Holy Family Primary School. And the bus would stop across the street from Holy Family Primary School. Some of our kids would get out. And then we'd continue on our journey homeward bound. And almost invariably, every day, we would engage in a sectarian ritual. We would sing songs to the Catholic kids in our squeaky 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old voices about what we would do to the Pope if we had a long enough piece of rope. 
we'd sing, the cry was no surrender, surrender or you'll die. We'll buy a rope and we'll hang the Pope and we'll let King Billy buy. And then we'd start pounding on the windows. We'd try and open the windows and spit on the kids. We would uh, give them a hand gesture that I won't replicate for you this morning to communicate non-verbally to those who couldn't hear our singing. And one day, some of the Catholic kids were sick and tired of what we're doing. They picked up a huge boulder and threw it through the big plate glass window in our double-decker bus, sharing us in shards and slivers of glass. So there's this deeply entrenched religious hostility. In Jesus' day, there was a more fierce, a more deeply entrenched religious hostility. There was a chasm between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans were deemed to be half-castes and spiritual, religious, theological compromisers. Jews would avoid them, but Jesus goes right into a village in Samaria and there engages in ministry. Why? Because he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And he wouldn't be governed by religious restrictions or the way things are always done around here. Jesus had a redemptive agenda and upended and discarded things that got in the way of it. Howard Snyder, in a book that's still pretty useful to read, but it's probably two decades two decades old, said, every age knows the temptation to forget that the gospel is ever new. We try to contain the new wine of the gospel in old wineskins, outmoded traditions, obsolete philosophies, creaking institutions, old habits. But with time, the old wineskins begin to bind the gospel. Then they must burst, and the power of the gospel pours forth once more. Many times, This has happened in the history of the church. Human nature wants to conserve, but the divine nature is to renew. It seems almost a law that things created to aid the gospel eventually become obstacles, old wineskins. And God says, throw away the old wineskins so that you have the capacity to drink deeply of the new wine of the kingdom of God. Albert Einstein said, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And if we want to see different results in our personal life, if we want to see different results in our congregational life, and I'm facing this challenge trying to architect a journey of change in my church, if we want to see different redemptive outcomes, and my heart burns deeply with the big idea of seeing people who are broken, who are scarred by sin, who are lost without hope without God in the world being captured by Jesus, those who've given up on church, being claimed by the Savior, then I think we've got to be willing to do things differently. So if our church, every year we baptize a few people, and it's a good Sunday, it's a good Sunday, but there's 400,000 people in our city. And so I don't get thrilled. You know, if there's an evangelical who finally gets wet, like, gee, you've been walking with Jesus for 20 years. Thanks for taking the big dunk. God bless you. What my heart aches to see is hundreds of people being baptized every year. People who haven't sat in a church pew, leaving the groove of their buttocks on the pew for decades. But those who are far from God, being redeemed by Jesus. And so I figure we've got to do things differently. And that's scary because I don't have all the answers. But what it does mean is we need to be open to a journey of change. 
If we want to see different things, it means doing different things. God is creative and innovative, and he's made us in our image and likeness. And unless we're open to innovation and experimentation, we will suffer from stagnation. If we don't innovate, we will stagnate. Scripture says in Mark 2 verse 22, he pours new wine into new wineskins. What does that mean? It means God wants us to celebrate and experience the new wine of the kingdom, which is the new life of the kingdom, but he also wants us to be innovational. What does that mean? It means that we must be committed to experiencing ongoing personal renewal, that in our walk with Jesus, at a heart level, we don't succumb to spiritual stagnation. Scripture says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So this is a word about creativity, but really creativity is useless unless it comes from a heart full of God. It's really the issue. And my experience in ministry, often people resist redemptive, healthy change because something's wrong in their soul. Something's wrong in their heart. And they won't align with God's direction for the future. Yes, because it's scary. Yes, it's unfamiliar. But the past enables them to stay unchallenged in a place of spiritual stagnation. And the big idea here at a personal level is that God wants you and I to be filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. Streams of living water coming from our innermost being. And you and I walking under a cloudless heaven filled with an unquenched, ungrieved Holy Spirit. Secondly, it means embracing change. How open are you to personal change, to corporate change, to doing things differently, to be more effective? For Jesus, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. Gordon Ramsay, that well-known theologian and philosopher, said, change is difficult sometimes. It's hard to say goodbye to the past. So he understands when he's telling someone that he's going to take all the decor that they've put in their restaurant and make a bonfire. He's going to change the name of the restaurant. He's going to get rid of the old tables. He's going to impose a new menu. He knows it's hard because there's a security that comes from the past. But the question for you and I is, are you set in your ways or open to change? An innovational church is made up of innovational people. And the possibility for all our churches across North America is the future could be brighter than the past. But that's not the the state of play across this great nation. 80% of North American churches have plateaued or are in decline. And so if we want to see something different, and it's not about numbers, it's about transformation. That's the metric that God's interested in, is change lives. Then are we willing to flex, adapt, change to reach lost and broken people? Will you become an innovational church to truly be a church for those who have given up on church? Are you willing to discard old methods and programs and experiment and take fresh, bold new approaches to increase your redemptive capacity? Uncomfortable questions to wrestle with. So it means experiencing renewal, embracing change, but embarking on a creative future. And the good news is, God's in charge of the future. He's the Alpha and the Omega. William Wilberforce fought a 36-year fight against slavery. And my understanding is, he never lived to celebrate victory. But in the context of the abolitionist movement 
And in the fight for social justice and social righteousness, John Wesley wrote to William Wilberforce. And this was the last piece of correspondence from Wesley before Wesley died. And he wrote to William and said, Best of all, William, God is on our side. And God's on our side. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But he calls us to be innovational. So that means we need to be willing to embark on a creative future. Isaiah 43 verse 19 says, See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. So the question is, will you be a spiritual innovator as a home group leader, cell group leader, as a youth worker, as a children's worker, as an elder, as someone who serves in a ministry area? Are you willing to be a spiritual innovator? Are you willing to do stuff outside of the box? Are you willing to follow through on nudges from the Holy Spirit? Now, the problem with nudges is you can get it wrong. You can get a nudge and you go, oh, oh, I guess that put me out in left field. And that really wasn't the voice of God. That was my unbridled imagination. But that's the fun. You can fall flat in your face or something spectacular and redemptive can happen. Now, I happen to know, as I mentioned the other night, my personality profile is an ENFP. And I'm excited because Jesus was an ENFP. No, I'm only teasing. But it's a... It's a construct to help us understand how people are hardwired. So that means I'm predisposed. I make decisions based on what's going on in my gut. And then if you ask me, uh, why did you do that? I'll freestyle. And because I'm quick on my feet, I'll come up with a five-point rationalization. But often it's a, it's a gut response rather than an analytical approach to problem solving. And that can get me into trouble, but it can also be a great deal of fun. So I'm open to nudges, but here's my theory. God wants to nudge all of us because Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me and I give to them eternal life. So a couple of examples of nudges with different outcomes for me. As you know, I used to frequent a pub in Seattle in the People's Republic of Fremont called the Georgian Dragon Pub. And I'd go there because there was live football because our cable company stunk and they didn't have ESPN2 back in the day. The Deuce, which was the only North American channel at that time that showed soccer. And I would go down there and eat shepherd's pie and watch the football and drink Diet 7-Up. No, but uh, I would enjoy the football. And so I was there during the Euros 10 years ago, Euro 2000. And, and I was having a blast because I got in there and I was watching England against Portugal and the place was packed and England went two nothing up and I was distraught I was weeping into my shepherd's pie but then Portugal came back and beat them three two I was ecstatic I was the Cheshire cat and one little Scottish guy the only other Scotsman in the pub made his way right across the room to me and said hey Billy don't be doing anything rash there's 200 of them and there's only two of us and I said, Billy, I like those odds. So I was there watching the game, and I went into the loo, which is the bathroom or the restroom, or if you're from Canada, A, eh, it's the washroom, A. Eh. And so as I'm at the urinal, 
recycling the liquid that is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. I look at this poster, which is there to inform you of the games and to explain why there's a cover charge to pay for satellite downloads of the games. And it's just defaced with graffiti and profanity from an angry customer. And I just thought, and then I had this nudge. I thought, I need to honor the owners and just express gratitude for them showing the games. So I went to Costco. I got one of those huge sheet cakes at Costco, which all you parents have discovered to be a great way if all the munchkins are coming to your house to ground jelly beans into the carpet and ice cream. And this big sheet cake, and I got a soccer ball on it, and I got the Costco baker to write on it to John and John, thanks for football on the telly. And then I went down to the pub to give it to them. It took Costco like three days to bake the thing because it was like the size of uh, a football stadium or something like that. It was big. So I put it into the back of an 18-ton truck and, and I drove down there and then I balanced it on my head and I, and I walked into the entryway. Now, a bit of backstory. One of the owners married a Jehovah's Witness. And when she married him, the family disowned her. And so he had a big old chip on his shoulder about things religious. And he and I have chatted about that. And we've had some interesting God talk, but that's an issue for him. And, and you could argue theologically that Jehovah's Witnesses ain't Christians, but he brackets them as religious people. So I appear in the doorway, and there's Debbie, the other John's wife. And I'm giving her the cover charge. And she says, now, put that back in your pocket. What you got there? Oh, that's lovely. And so she takes me into the pub. And there's the other John, not the John whose husband. He's a fierce-looking guy with a big old ponytail. And uh, he's always got a five o'clock shadow, even after he shaves. And if somebody's misbehaving in the pub, he just needs to do that. And they just turn into a three-year-old girl. It's pretty amazing. And so John comes up and he goes, oh, what's that? I said, John, that's for you and John. I just want to say thank you for putting the football on. And he begins to tear up this hard man. And he goes, oh, bloody hell. That's the nicest thing MD's done for me in years. And he doesn't know what to do. And there's this awkward spine-tingling silence. And then he says, Oi, everyone, cake, cake, free beer for the Scotsman. And I'm like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> it wasn't set up as a transaction, but I just had this nudge and followed through. A small nudge. You could get a nudge. The neighbor moves in. Hey, I'm going to bake them a lasagna, garlic bread, and a going to make a Caesar salad and just say, welcome to the neighborhood. And it's not there to leverage a missional moment to preach a 12-point sermon. It's just there to be an expression of the kindness of God. In our town, and I don't know how you guys dealt with it, was 9-11 was just like a paradigm-breaking, harrowing moment when airspace above North America was silent. And you didn't know what to do. Like, my son's soccer team still did practice. And there was two planes in the sky, F-15 fighter jets, you know, patrolling Pacific Northwest airspace. It was just bizarre. 
dealing with that. But after we'd kind of got over the raw horror of the moment, then people were singled out. Racial profiling began. And our local mosque was the target of mischief and uh, violence from vandals. And so the sign in the local mosque was just totally defaced. And I was praying. And God gave me one of those nudges and said, Hey, son, go down to the mosque and tell them that you love them and that I love them. I'm saying, okay, God. So I got down the car, like the only white guy in the neighborhood, and a circle of Muslim men surround me. I get out of the car, and I said, hey, my name's Bill. I love Jesus. I'm a pastor in the town, and I want you to know that my church is praying for you. And I'm deeply sorry for what's happened to you. And I want you to know that I love you and God loves you. And we started chatting. Like Then these guys thought, here's a prospect for conversion to Islam. You know, so, so they start working the Scotsman and saying, hey, we've got this thing called Introduction to Islam for Infidels. With, uh, we don't have Nicky Gumbel on DVD, but we have an imam and he will. And I said, I'm just here to say I care about you and can I pray for you? And they're like, sure. So there's all these guys from umpteen different nations and the little Scotsman, and we're all holding hands. And I pray. A non-PC in the name of Jesus prayer. And I'm received into these people's lives and invited to contact things further. Are you prepared to follow nudges? Are you prepared to do new things? The Alpha Course has borne remarkable fruit across the planet, even to this day. And that's the product of innovation. Everybody thinks Nicky Gumbel invented Alpha. He did not. There was a vicar who was running a discipleship course, and he thought, oh dear, none of the people on the discipleship course are actually Christ followers. None of them are Christians. Hmm, spot a bother. What do we do? Do we do the course just the way it is and just say praise Jesus anyway, you unregenerate heathen? Or what do we do? He says, I'm going to back up the vicar truck and reinvent this jolly thing. That's when we'll have something to eat. That's a great idea. And so he remodeled it so that it started with people before they'd made a faith commitment. Then Nicky Gumbel takes it on and he gets all the credit. How cool is that? But if an Anglican vicar in a denomination associated with traditionalism was smart enough to say, I need to adapt this because it ain't working, then we could learn from I was part of a church in Glasgow that had a coffee shop attached to our worship center. And we thought we were cool. Like, look at us. Like, we are so cool. We have coffee. You can have a born-again pie and a born-again mug of coffee. Whoa, welcome, welcome. Except we didn't talk like that because we're Scottish. So we say, hey, come on in. Have some bacon and eggs. Have a heart attack on a plate. And if you have a heart attack, what would happen to you when you die? So that, that was... But we got a lot of foot traffic from the stores. People would come in, they'd have soup and sandwiches, and we just thought, you know what, we're so cool. We're like the only church in the city, whoa, that's got a coffee house. Big deal. National Community Church, under the leadership of Mark Batterson, 
didn't do what we did. Let's append a coffee house to a worship center. He turned it upside down. Let's append a worship center to a coffee house. So they took over a listed building, opened up Ebenezer's Coffee House with fair trade coffee, great food in Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. And they're a multi-site church and their smallest campus meets in the basement of the coffee house. So it's a coffee house. It's missional entrepreneurialism with a worship center attached to it. I've heard of a church that pays prostitutes for one hour of their time to serve them and to share the gospel. I don't know how that shows up on a spreadsheet for a church's budget, but it is intriguing and innovative. I've heard of one church that invaded a university campus with leaflets simply apologizing for the historic failures of the church. All these things are just little examples that God invites us to step out the box, to approach the future with creativity and an experimental spirit, the heart of an entrepreneur, and say, let's try this for Jesus and see if somehow we can spread his hope and healing a little further. Are you willing not only to be invitational and infiltrational, but to be innovational? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit, that he is the creative creator spirit. He is the life-giving, innovational spirit who hovered over the primordial chaos. And when he hovered and you spoke, life burst forth. And Lord, it's our heart's desire for kingdom life to burst forth in our hearts, our lives, our marriages, our families, our ministries, our church. So we pray that your spirit would hover over us, that he would nudge us, he would brood over us and anoint us with creativity, and that we would step into the future with a bold, unshakable desire to make your son, the Lord Jesus, more famous in the places that you have slaughtered us. And we pray that you would breathe life and creativity into our hearts. We thank you for this church. And we pray that you will pour out your blessing upon it so that it could be a blessing. And we pray that you would anoint uh, the leadership here with wisdom and love and courage and that you will use Harvest Community Church to embody the hope and grace and love of Jesus wherever Harvest people are scattered because we ask it in Jesus' name and for his fame. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.